Hello and welcome to the A-List, the podcast that asks the world's top advertising professionals how they got started in the business. I'm Tom Chrisman, Chief Creative Officer at DeMassimo Goldstein, an inspiring action agency in New York City. And today, I got to talk to Linda Kaplan-Thaler, who is an icon, a legend in the ad business. She created the Aflac Duck. She wrote, I Don't Want to Grow Up, I'm a Toys R Us Kid, the song. She has been in the business since the early 80s and is now uh, writing books and speaking. And her latest book is called Grit to Great. She's also wrote a book called The Power of Nice and another one called The Power of Small that we talk about in the interview. She tells stories about President Trump, Melania Trump. She tells stories about Colin Powell. And she tells how she got into this crazy business, and she gives us some really good insight into how to be a better person and sort of let your reputation speak for you. So I will, um, I don't do a lot of talking in this one because she is amazing. But first, all this is thanks to the fine people at Ad House Advertising School. And so we're doing this clip show because classes are starting in the next few weeks, and you could be learning from an ad genius in the agency where they work. They give you assignments, you do ads, you get critiqued each week, you get 10 classes for just 600 bucks. That's 10 chances to get to know and learn from A-listers like Cash Shree at Gyro. Brandon Drew Pierce from Droga5 is on the books this year. Super freelancer Paul Fix, love that guy. Classes start the week of September 20th, but they're filling up fast. Go to adhousenyc.com and tell them you heard about it here on the A-list podcast. And now, my interview with Linda Kaplan-Thaler. Hello, Linda Kaplan-Thaler. Hello. Welcome to the A-List Podcast. Thanks for thanks for uh, doing this. I have rarely been on anybody's A-List, so I'm really, really <laughs> thrilled to be here. Well, uh, I, I, the first time I heard your name uh, was uh, I was in uh, – where was I? I was probably at Kershaw Mountain Bond and Partners uh, in New York City. Um, you were the person who wrote the Toys R Us Kids song. That's that's the first time I heard of, of you. Um, yeah, and, that was uh, me. Those those kids in this commercial are probably grandparents by now. <laughs> that's right. So how how did you get started? How did how did where did you grow up? I grew up uh, pretty much in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, Long Island for the first few years, but then in the Bronx. Uh, and my one great dream was to get out of the Bronx, as it is for most people who live there. Uh, I, I, I realized actually years later that I'm really happy I went to the Bronx because the Bronx had nothing. You know, there was no culture, there were no museums, there were no concerts. Right. So you really had to make your own fun, right? So yeah. that's how I got into singing and playing in the guitar and writing music and, and playing piano and comedy and all, which I think is the reason so many comedians and writers have hailed from the Bronx, simply because you really had to make your own entertainment. You had to make your own fun, um, yeah. You had to make your own fun. And when I was about, let's see, so when I went to college and I had a, public school education. I did not come from a family that had a lot of money. Where did you go to college? Um, I went to the City College of New York. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I always brag that City College gave me something no Ivy League school did, mainly an acceptance letter. Um, <laughs> but, e- but even but even like the and Colin Powell went to City College. I'm on his yeah. board. You know, there's a Colin Powell school that's part of City College now. And uh, I'm very very proud that I went there. It, academically, academically was great. They still produce more PhDs than any other university in the world, and they're the most diversified school in the world. Yeah. But uh, my dream was to sort of be in theater. Um, I originally, when I graduated, I wanted to go to graduate school to be a psychologist. At that time, in the 70s, virtually everybody that graduated that was sort of left-wing, socialist, you know, Democrat type person wanted to be a psychiatrist or psychologist or sociologist. So I didn't get to the schools that I wanted to get to. Yeah, but I I was always active in the Musical Theater Society. I had um, enough credits in my minor, which was music, to actually get my degree in musicology, which is sort of history and theory of music. I ended up teaching at City College for about a year or two. And then I really got interested in theater and performing. And I spent my 20s making very little money and being extremely thin. Um, (laughs) There wasn't a lot lot to eat except, you know, grilled cheese sandwiches. And I would, you know, be in uh, all four Broadway plays. I was touring. I was in a comedy troupe called the Ed Sullivan Memorial Review. And we played all the clubs in New York. It was myself and five other guys. Wow. And yeah, I, and I was, so I was really interested in writing comedy, uh, probably more than even performing it. Sounds like and, you were, you were really driven, uh, early on. Is that, is that something you got from your parents yeah, or where did you get, where did you get that? Yeah. Well, my, my mother was a writer, my father a very brilliant man, an inventor and an engineer. And but my mother had this amazing gift for writing comedy and had she been born later, she would have done it professionally, but she sort of did it in her spare time for comedians and things and she was a great lyricist. I mean, I would never could never compete with her in terms of oh, her, wow. her lyrics, but but she, you know, woman, you know, brought up during depression era yeah. didn't didn't work you know when my father had a job and stuff right. so i i toured for a while and i was in this comedy troupe and i really was starving i mean i was like the epitome of a starving artist right. and i said you know and and there was one point where i kept getting when i would try out for bigger roles i kept getting like called back and then I would be like an understudy, but never quite make it. And I think the epitome for me and maybe the breaking point was there was a off-Broadway show called Lemmings with this group of people that would later go on to be the first cast for Saturday Night Live oh with Gilda God. Ratner and, and Chevy Chase. And I got called back for this role. I always got the same role, which they are called back, which would be the dumb skinny little kid. I don't know why I'm here. You know, I, whether it was Stop the World, what I had to do with a British accent, I don't know why I'm here. Uh, I always got the same role. Yeah. Anyway, I got called back and called back and called back and finally they gave the part to this woman named Gilda Ratner yeah. who obviously was far more talented <laughs> than I was. Um, 
But I said, you know, this is the last straw. And my father knew somebody who was in the advertising side of the business at Gray Advertising. And he introduced me to this wonderful man, Manning Rubin, still a good friend and really talented man. Manning Rubin, R-U-B-I-N. And what a great name. He was working on a very funny campaign, and he told me how to put a book together. He didn't have a job for me at the time, but he said, you have to put a book together. And so I did my little drawings, and I wrote a lot of jingles because I was very interested. The other thing I did in my 20s was I wrote a lot of children's songs. I really liked one uh, in particular called The Opposite Song that ended up being – Sung all over the city, it's grade schools, uh, and it was to teach kids the opposite. So it would be like, it's called the opposite song. When I say right, you say wrong, wrong, wrong. That's how it goes along. It's called the opposite song. If I say up, you say down. If I say square, you say round. If I say lost, you. I mean, it, that, so that was it. And I it got so it. popular, it was actually translated into Spanish at one point. But, uh, and of course, they didn't ask me to write the rhymes for that one. So <laughs> I finally said, you know, this is sort of. And I, so this Manning Rubin told me about advertising and I thought, I had never, ever thought of being in business. I mean, that was, if you knew me with my long hair and my bell bottoms and my piece of it was like crazy. Yeah. I'm an actor. I'm a performer. I'm a comedy writer. And, um, it seems like advertising is that sort of, uh, in the Venn diagram of, uh, crazy artists and business people. It is the one little sliver that where it sort of. You can. I know. Both. It's the repository for artists and musicians and sculptors and, you know, people who, who love their work but also want to eat. And so I, uh, I put this book together and I had so much fun. And one of my, I was also teaching piano at the time, one of my piano students, uh, her father was a producer and said, oh, I know somebody. Uh, at J. Walter Thompson, this man named Bernie Owett, who unfortunately has passed away, a really talented creative director, art director. And how do you spell Bernie? He my uh, B E R N I E, mm-hmm. and his last name is Owett, O W E T T. Really, really, uh, really talented. At the time, he was the only, he was a closet Jew. Nobody really knew he was Jewish, <laughs> but obviously my name at the time was Linda Kaplan. He knew I was Jewish. Right. I, I don't know whether he liked my work or they simply wanted to diversify J. Walter Thompson. So they hired me. Because J. Walter Thompson second. was one of the non-Jewish places to work in oh, advertising really, at the time. It really was very uh, – and you're a woman coming into this like, you know, it's Mad Men, right? It's like it's uh, it's it's smoking yeah. in the office. It's it's uh, it's lewd jokes. It's martini lunches. Right. It's, uh, oh, you must be from the secretarial pool. Like, it, it, was that what it was like? Right. Well, actually, I'm um, Or are you a little later than uh, that? I, it was later. It was the 80s. Um, it was the early eighties, but it was, but I got it in the early nineties and it was, it was pretty much, I could still see the remnants of that. There were the older people were still smoking in their offices and, you know, yeah. And the women, uh, couldn't eat in the executive cafeteria. And even I think a little bit before I got there, the women had to wear hats and gloves to, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, really, really nuts. And there was, I with my, you know, my bell bottoms and, you know, I don't think I ever wore a dress. The entire time I was there, I, except I have client meetings. I right. remember this, the, the CEO, the chairman, 
Bert Manning, yeah, uh, B U R T M A N N I N G, who is wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, but it was those times, you know, and he he went into my little cubicle one day and he said, you know, I really like your work. You're very talented, but do you think? You could wear a dress once in a while. I'd like to see your legs. Oh, and of course now, now you would. You know what? It me too, Bert Manning. Of, yeah, me too. It was like <laughs> yeah, it was way way before. But but he didn't mean it. You know yeah. what can I say? You know, I mean, at the time I didn't think anything of it, and I don't think he was saying it for sexual reasons. I think he was just making a joke that yeah. no one had ever seen me. You know, and my boss then was a guy named Jim Patterson. Yeah. We all know only, Jim Patterson. Yeah, his only dream was to get out of advertising and write a best-selling book. And everyone knew I, it. <laughs> and everyone knew it, but, you know, and now everybody calls him James. And yeah. he's, he's a good buddy and friend, and he's endorsed all my books. He's been great. But yeah. 17 years I worked for this man and uh, never thought he was going to actually write that book. sell enough books to get out of advertising, which is why I went to Wells Ridge Green, because... I said, Jim, I'm never going to get your your job because you're never going to sell a friggin' book. But you worked said, for him for how chance. long? 17 years. You stayed at J. Walter Thompson for 17 years working for James I Patterson. I stayed there for 17 years. Yeah, and and I, but I did, you know, I did a lot of things. I was he, he he had no gender bias. You know, he was always fair to everybody. He was a tough boss though, and but really really smart and creative and when we were pitching i remember the toys r us account i said you know and he and my art director had come up with this line i don't want to grow up i'm a toys r us kid and Mm -hmm. i said you know jim this has to be a song it feels like a song right well had had you done that were you the person who brought that up every time like hey this has to be a song because that was part of your just natural talent yeah i Oh, yeah, my natural tendency was like, this is Kodak moments. This, let me write a song. You yeah. Know? I mean, that was, you have to understand that before I actually got my job in advertising, one of the other things I did was I wrote jingles. Right. Um, you know, everything was just to sort of make some money. I remember for one company, Faith Popcorn, who's still around. Yeah. I wrote 10 jingles with this other woman who, Lori uh, Garnier, who was, was my best friend, you know, and we met doing off-Broadway shows. And we wrote 10 jingles, the lyrics and the music, arranged and produced them. Wow. And I got $150 for and it. And you were like, this is awesome. This is awesome. There's so much money to be made at advertising, yeah, right? So right. that was $15 a jingle. So I so I wrote this song, I Don't Want to Go to Toys Kid, and yeah. he wasn't sure, and but we had all these demos. Nobody liked the demos coming in. And so he gave it to the client, you know, for nothing because I worked at the agency. I you know, I never got paid for that song. Right. And uh, the client liked it. And then they tested it with kids and kids seemed to like it. And and then a week later, Jim comes into my office. He said, you know, I think I think this song maybe maybe we'll be doing OK because I it was just at Logan Airport, and somebody was singing it. It's only been on the air for like five days. Wow! I said, "That's so so funny." I said, "This kid was running down the street singing the song, and his mother said, if you don't stop singing that song, we're never going to catch the bus for school.'" So I said, "Yeah, maybe it'll catch on." And That's amazing. then when Toys R Toys R Us closed, you know, yeah. last year, and my husband and I were on like every television show every new show singing the song because he would he did the arrangements 
uh, most of the arrangements for the songs because I met him in the early 80s. And, oh, wow. Yeah, and, and I wrote my, like, goodbye version of the song. And Aww. I had no idea that how many thousands and thousands of people it's were be still millions. singing it. Well, millions, and I got hundreds and hundreds of emails and and things on Facebook. And then people, I speak around the world now, I'm a professional speaker, yeah. They can sing the song back to me in their own language. It's been, in, it's been. Oh, I was in wow. Tokyo last year. They were singing in Japanese and they sing it in French. And I had no idea. Um, That's incredible. It would be around. Yeah, I think it's the longest running jingle in American history. I think. That's incredible. I'm not sure. What What is the secret to writing a good jingle? A great hook. It's the same thing as writing when you write a great song. My husband's yeah. a award-winning composer. You you really have to come up with the hook, you know. In and of course, writing a jingle is different than a song because you usually got to have to get the salient points in about your product. And, and you know, the Toys R Us song is just what it is. It's just a lyric that's just filled with copy points. Yeah. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. There's a million toys. There's books and games and video games. I right. mean, it's just like. That's just the copy points, but yeah. uh, you try to do it in an entertaining way. And of course, nobody does jingles anymore. But you but know, is that is that something 80s, that we've just thrown out uh, as like, uh, well, that's an old idea? But like, people still do jingles. I, I see them. Sometimes yeah. they're tongue in cheek, but but they do stick yeah, in your brain yeah. more than uh, just regular copy points. Right. There's an occasional bad legal company that'll do a jingle or a mattress company that'll do it. I mean, I think it's sort of the, sort of the, the, the bottom feeder of, you know, advertising. Right. Right. People think it's easy. Well, they think it's easy. So they write bad ones, but you know, they're, they're earworms. If they're even the bad ones, you know, you, you, yeah. Selino and Barnes, remember them. Injury attorneys, 180. Selino and Barnes, injury. Right. The number you had, Right. And why isn't Trump calling them? I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, the best legal advice. So, I, so after I wrote he the may jingle, have I started soon. writing. Maybe, maybe, yeah. And I wrote, I started writing a lot of jingles and worked on this campaign that we called Kodak Moments, which was interesting because we had never actually come up with that line, but we actually heard somebody on TV, an actress, talking about her child. And we were doing these very, three hanky commercials with little kids. That was the time when the boomer generation were having children. So there was a lot of film burn. And so we did these very emotional commercials. And she said, oh, my daughter took her first steps. It was like a real Kodak moment. And, you know, harkening to our commercials. And we went in, the next day we went into work and we gathered around, you know, our whole Kodak team. And we said, has anybody ever called this a Kodak moment, what what we're doing? I said no, and I said song. So, <laughs> and then we everybody started calling moments Kodak moments. You know, sometimes the best, yeah, the right, the best adages are the ones that somebody else, you know, the culture invents for you. So I and I wanted to do that, and then I then I, I really believe that there wasn't enough humor in because I was working on Clairol and women's products, and I felt that. There was no humor. It was completely soulless. Men were the clients. Right. And I pitched Clarol and I 
said, you don't understand how to talk to women. You take everything so seriously. Hair color is not serious. Deadbeat husbands are serious. Breast cancer is serious. Yeah. Coloring your roots, deep auburn 34A, not serious. Yeah. And they, uh, you know, they let me take over the account, and I wow. ended up doing a lot of humor. You know, if you remember, well, you probably wouldn't remember, but Julia Louise Dreyfus for Nice and Easy. Of Changing, yeah, and 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 then the herbal essence advertising, which uh, our team came up with, we're remembering that scene from Harry Met Sally. Yes, we thought this is a new way to sell shampoo, and nobody would go to the client except me because they said the client would throw me out. Uh, but the brand was about to go off the shelves, so they had to do it's something. It's so great to, yeah, isn't it great to work on brands that are so desperate and they let you do anything <laughs> yeah right? that, those are the best usually right so i walked in there and they all. had the pantene was spending like 100 million dollars a year herbal essence had like nothing mm-hmm. i walked into this boardroom that was all men and i said gentlemen only an orgasm can save this brand <laughs> <laughs> And they said, maybe you're right. And then they let me do it, you know. And wow. So you really you really put it to them with – you shocked them with your with your delivery of, of the presentation. And yeah. did you only bring that yeah. one idea or did you have backups? Oh, no, no. We had a lot of backups, but I saved okay. this for last. Right. And only one client, Steve said, of the other clients were aghast. And Steve said, you know, she may have a point there. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you'll get a lot of hate mail. He and said, well, they? if we don't get more than – Yes, especially in the Bible Belt. He said, but if we don't get more than 10% hate mail, we're keeping it on the air because it had the highest recall score ever in the beauty. I mean, ever, ever, ever. And within six months, it was the second leading hair care product to Pantene. Uh, And Pantene, of course, is owned by Procter & Gamble. And Procter & Gamble said, you know what? We got to buy... We had to buy the company, and so they bought all of Clairol. Herbal Essence was part of Clairol, but that was the impetus for why they bought it. So you made uh, millions of dollars for some for some guy. <laughs> I have made millions of dollars for so many other people other than myself. It's pathetic. <laughs> no, but that by that time I actually had started my own agency. Uh, how did how did I that happen? With, how did you start? How did you start uh, Kaplan Thaler? Right. R- right. Well, is that what it was called? I originally? had a not great. Well, I had a not great experience at Wellswitch Green uh, I, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, the biggest one was when I got there, I realized that uh, they had told me that they had all these businesses, but they only had two, and one was about to walk out the door. Oh, God. Um, and somebody who was working there at the time, I said, why did you why did you lie to me? Why did you tell me you're so big? She said, well, I gave what was called the D-cup presentation to you. <laughs> <laughs> the D cup? She said, yeah, we're really like a training bra size. <laughs> I wanted to give you the D cup. I mean, only a woman, right? Yeah. And uh, laughter through the tears. I said, oh, God. And then, anyway, there were there were all sorts of problems with the agency. And, sure. I, and I left. And I said to my husband, I would rather sell pencils on the street than ever work for anybody ever again. And so... The client for Herbal Essence has said, you know, you can take this business anywhere you want to go. And at the time, I had two young kids, and we lived in a brownstone, and my husband 
was doing his music thing. He wrote jingles and movies and TV stuff. And so we had the studio in our brownstone. And I thought, yeah, I really don't want to like leave the house. My kids are so tiny. So I said to Steve, what if I just took that account, just that one account, and I Mm -hmm. did it from home? And he said, hmm, well, it's a $35 million account. You might want to bring another person with you, like a business person. (laughs) And I'm like, you think? He said, yeah, I know this woman. I work with her. Her name is Robin Koval. And so he introduced me to Robin, and we met at this little Michael's Muffin place uh-huh. and uh, I had met other people to be prospective partners and they weren't right. And I walk in and she's early and I see a surgically cut brand muffin, a half on a plate for me and a half for her. And she said, hi, I'm Robin Koval. The muffins here were very expensive and very large. So they took the liberty of ordering one and splitting it in half. If you don't like it, I can get you something else. Oh my God. Well, that was it. Yeah. That's the, said, that's the that's interview. It. So what was what was what was wrong about all the other people? They they showed up late. They like what what do you see in a what's a good business partner for someone? Well, I wrote a whole book on it with Robin called The Power of Nice. Uh, It's yeah, it's the cues. You know, here I what did I find out? I found out in the first sixty seconds she's thoughtful, she's punctual, she's proactive, and she has a plan B in case I don't like brand muffins. I mean, what else did, you know, and she's organized which, yeah. and all these things I needed, right? Because yeah. I'm like the typical, you know, crazy creative kind of all over the place. Right. And I went home and I said to my husband, um, that's it. I found the person. And I, you know, boy, was I right. I yeah. mean, she is brilliant. She's now saving thousands of lives. She's the head of the Truth Initiative, which is the organization that um, is not just fighting uh uh, cigarette smoking, but also the opioid crisis. She's been on TV a lot with with that advertising, and but but everything. I mean, just she. We really and and when, when years later, when we decided to write books about the things that we had experienced and interviewing other people, we found that most people hire somebody they know within the first sixty seconds, right? Yeah, you know. Yeah, and the the power of nice is all about how to be that kind of person? Yeah, well, what we found was that it was sort of the the dirty little secret that marketing people and, and advertising people didn't want anybody to know, which is that, and, and outside, advertise, outside of advertising too, is yeah. that actually being nice is more than just sort of a, a good ethical uh, mode of behavior. It actually makes business sense. Mm-hmm. And when we interviewed over the two years of writing the book, all these really well-known CEOs, what we found is they had this really nice component. You know, they, uh, you know, whether it was A.G. Lafley, you know, the head of Procter & Gamble, who Mm -hmm. I never heard him say the word me or I ever in a speech, or Warren Buffett, who I had an interview with, who couldn't have, self-effacing, nice, or Colin Powell, who I'm so happy to known and consider a friend. I mean, these people lead with kindness and they lead with the assertive, you know, they, they, they know that they're smart. They know that they're capable, but they ascribe to what I call the Harry Truman motto, which is you can accomplish anything in your lifetime as long as you're willing to take credit for none of it. 
you wow. know, yeah. the kind of humility that's certainly missing today. Yeah, in, you in think a lot of leadership should send your you book think? to a certain person. Uh... Well, now I can now I'm going to tell you something that because I was on the apprentice, I had. So here I've been writing books, and then, and then we created the Affleck Duck and all that stuff. And yeah, I want to talk about we, the Affleck Duck, too. So, but, but we'll, well so we had done a commercial with this beautiful woman named Melania Trump, who happened to be married to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And it, you can look at it on YouTube. It's very funny. It was sort of a Frankenstein commercial where her brain gets inserted to the duck, and the duck starts to talk like Melania. It was very, very funny. Right. And... About a year or two later, I get asked to be on The Apprentice to, to be a judge uh, right. for one of the shows. And I call, I, so I, when the show airs, I send Donald Trump a box of chocolates, thanking him for being so nice to me on the show. And he was so thrilled how nice we treated Melania. And, you know, anyway, to make a long story short, he started endorsing all my books and wow. put me in his books you know, wrote about me in his book. Right, right. So and, he's, he's a friend of yours, sort of. Well, well, I wouldn't... In yeah, that he, way. He was a colleague, you know, I yeah. mean, he was somebody that I knew, and he would, every time I'd have a book, he would write a nice endorsement. Uh, and he wrote a beautiful one for The Power of Nice, which is on the back of my book, which... <laughs> I did not know I that. think it's sitting... I think I think somebody gave it to him. I think it's somebody said it's actually sitting on his desk somewhere or was sitting on his... Oh. Uh, but... No, I know. I don't, don't even go there. It's you know, incredible. I, I no, know I won't. I, say this I don't want to right. be singled but, out. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> you know, who kn- didn't know he was going to run for president and all that stuff? Yeah. Uh, and I'm an art, you know, lifelong Democrat. I, yeah. I worked on well, Bill so Clinton's he. campaign. In, I, that's right. <laughs> I worked on Bill Clinton's campaign in 92, which was fabulous. I did his biographical commercial, The Man from Hope. Yeah. And uh, he enjoyed having me on his team so much so that when in 2008, when Hillary was running, she put me on her team as well. Um, wow. So, yeah, I know my, you know, the intersection of my life with a lot of people is, is, is bizarre and, and strange, you know, and wonderful at the same it's, time. It's the power uh, of advertising, though. Is, is what other business can you sort of turn your exact, your uh, talent for singing and dancing and making entertainment into something that you could meet heads of state and uh, wow, incredible! Exactly. I know. Look, I I when I interviewed Warren Buffett, and I, I was told I had ten minutes to interview him for something. It was a campaign for the New York Stock Exchange. It was a radio commercial. I said they had 10 minutes with him. And I'm thinking, and I actually put this in the power of nice, and I'm thinking, all right, I need need to get more than 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes. So I'm racking my brain. You know, he was, at the time, he was worth $11 billion. Obviously, he's worth a lot more now. I didn't know what to get. And then I read his biography, and to start the interview, I said, Mr. Buffett, I want to give you a gift and I give him a cherry Coke because I found out that was his favorite beverage. Not surprising since he's made the bulk of his money on Coca-Cola stock. Uh-huh. And he looks at me. I mean, talk about a sweet guy, right? He looks at me and he says, young lady, in all my years of being interviewed, no one has ever been thoughtful enough to give me my favorite beverage. So I'm canceling all my other appointments this morning and you have as long as you want. And I had like a two and a half in- hour interview with Warren Buffett. Wow. You know, yeah. That's I, incredible. So this, like, the pow- 
right? It's like a power of nice with a cherry on top, cherry coke on top. Yeah. And I t- and I tell that story in a lot of a lot of my talks because, you know, it's those small little things that don't cost you anything. You know, the, the soda cost me a dollar. Mm-hmm. That, you know, nobody will say to you, "I like being complimented" or "I like the spotlight being on me." But people do. You know, yeah. uh, when we wrote The Power of Nice, I wanted to um, get an interview with uh, a celebrity, mm-hmm. uh, somebody who was considered nice. And at the time, uh, Jay Leno's The Tonight Show was, you know, number one. And right. I thought, well, he has a reputation for being a nice guy. So I reached out to somebody who knew his PR person to see if there were any stories about something nice he did for somebody he worked with. Yeah. Well, the next day, he calls me up on the phone. Not his secretary, wow. not the PR person. He says, hi, this is Jay Leno. I heard you're writing a book about being nice, and I'd love to share some stories with you. So wow. Robin and I quickly got a tape recorder, you know, <laughs> and we didn't have iPhones then. And he proceeded for an hour to tell us these stories about why he got guests back that other late night hosts didn't get because he put the spotlight on them. And he introduces the idea of moving the spotlight always make your feel your guests feel smarter and, and funnier than you. Mm -hmm. And then you get them back over and over again. And I thought, wow, that's good business sense. So in Bower of Nice, we wrote a whole chapter on that idea of shining the spotlight on someone else. And then I actually asked him if he would write the forward for a book and he did, and so the cover of the book says "Forward by Jay Leno," which sold a lot of books by having his name on the I'm cover. I'm sure <laughs> that's great. What and, a and great then, story! And, and then when I wrote "The Power of Small," he called me up again and gave me more stories about how because that book was about how the little things make all the difference. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I know, right? And, and that's life now for you. You're you're writing books. You're helping uh, other people sort of find. Um, the intuitions and the insights that you found throughout your life, and and what's the latest book? So which the latest book, now? which we wrote, uh, is called Rich Great. Um, it was actually 2015, uh, one of the best selling, uh, uh, best business books by Forbes. I think was yep. one of the best top business books, and how it's called Grit to Great. How perseverance. Perseverance, passion, and pluck can take you from ordinary to extraordinary. And we interviewed so many people. I mean, the book was sort of the three years in the making. You know, our books are small, but it actually takes a long time to write a small book, to write a short book. And we just interviewed all these people who were extraordinary in the sense that they were completely ordinary growing up. Uh, Colin Powell was a C-minus student at college Mm. until he discovered his love for the military and became a passionate and devoted student. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steven Spielberg, I don't know how many people realize that couldn't get into film school. He applied three times and was rejected. Michael Jordan didn't make his high school varsity basketball team. Mm-hmm. I mean, the list, Jack Ma of Alibaba couldn't get a job as a KFC server when he graduated college. Mm-hmm. These people showed no potential. Right. They were not brilliant. They weren't ta- especially talented, but they did have this grit and we define grit as an acronym. I'm an advertising person, Mm -hmm. guts, resilience, initiative, and tenacity. And I have to say that 
probably that book more than any other book uh, has led to me speaking all over the world mm. uh, because I think people want to feel empowered. It's too easy to say, well, I can't, I can't become successful because I'm not brilliant mm. or I'm not really gifted. Mm. And the research actually shows that people who are born geniuses have a very, very low chance of being successful. There is an inverse proportion to genius IQ and success because people who are born geniuses, things come really easy to them for a very long time. Yeah. And then when they hit a roadblock, they simply do not They don't know. know they don't have how, the skills. They don't have the skill set. As a matter of fact, people who are, dysle people who are dyslexic have an inverse, have, have, sorry, have a, a por proportionately um, disproportionate amount of them. I sound dyslexic saying this, but <laughs> disproportionate to become successful. There's a very famous attorney in New York, not Michael Cohn, who uh, has memorized all the uh, case studies in all the law books. And it's not because he's genius at IQ. It's because he's dyslexic. Yeah. And he's had to memorize them because to read through them when he gets a case, it would take too long. So he's committed them all to memory. Wow. This is the kind of thing that, you know, I talk about. And uh, it's been great. You know, I, I meet fascinating people from all walks of life. It's so good. Cultures in the, yeah, it's great. And it's that's great. why I love and doing I have, this yeah. podcast is a similar, as you were saying, the, you know, most of them showed very little potential. And they, everybody I've spoken to, including yourself, um, didn't know what the heck they were doing when they first started and just kind of fell into this business. But it is such a a great um, – you can make a lot of money doing this and also you can meet a lot of really fun people and have a great time and do really good things for culture. You know, you, your, your work will be remembered, you know, especially your work, uh, uh, Toys R Us Kid and, and Aflac Duck and um, is going to be remembered by a lot of people. And uh, I think people, there are a lot of people out there who have no idea that this is even a business you can get into. So um, thank right. you for, thank you for speaking to us. What, what, what other, um, what one piece of advice would you give yourself getting into this business uh, back when you got into it uh, that you think would have Well, first of all, I, I, I tell everybody the first two words, be nice, because every time you are nice, you are giving away a positive imprint, and those positive imprints are like seeds, mm. and they will grow in ways that you can't imagine. I'm sure you've experienced this, and you know, starting my own agency, a lot of the business that came in were for things that I had done for people. I mean, even, even getting called to pitch the Aflac account mm. was because... I had taken somebody out to lunch 15 years earlier and they were connected to somebody in advertising research. And when they were looking for people to pitch the business, he, this guy, this gentleman said, you know, there's this woman named Linda Kaplan. I think she just started, opened a company. I don't know very much about her, but I'd like to return the favor because she took me out to lunch a long time ago. Wow. Why don't you let her at least pitch the, yeah. I could tell you so many stories, you know, of just, that just, it's the way it turns out with people. And, you know, you get old enough and you realize you go back and I would challenge anybody 
find something great that they've accomplished and drill it down and you will find that you did something nice for somebody along the way. So that's one thing. Mm. And then the other thing is have grit. Just don't friggin' ever give up. Mm. And when you hit that wall and, and you you fail, how do you, what do you, what do you do to sort of like, what's, what's your process for processing that? Do you, do you just, you have to just feel the pain and just, deal with it yeah yeah well we would we would lose an account or lose a pitch we would gather as a group we'd pour imaginary water into our hands we'd hold it for a minute and then we have to let it go and you know you only have so much energy in you and we would say okay now take that negative energy and we would always end that with a pitch for something else or another project we were doing Mm. and so that negative energy would be immediately turned into positive energy Mm. And I really do believe in positive energy. I mean, we were, no, you know, we were known, even if we lost a pitch, we would send champagne to the agency that won the other account. Sounds crazy, but you know what? You're in the business long enough. Those really talented people, if they end up leaving that agency, the first place they're going to call is yours. Yeah. They say, you know what? I want to work here. Yeah. So uh, Reputation is more advice. important than, than the things that you've done, accomplishments. I think so. Yeah. And and my world is all about, you know, I mean, I've long forgotten a lot of, not forgotten, but I I put that sort of way on back burner. And, you know, the things I do now, I'm, I've been studying improv at UCB. I just Mm -hmm. graduated. Oh, wow. Uh, So I, I, yeah, I do that. I do workshops with people in improv. Back on the stage soon? Off Broadway. Well, we have. I've done a lot of a lot of performances at UCB, at UCB, yeah. uh, and I enjoy that immensely. And I have a couple of clients here and there that I take on uh, just because I love it and it's fun. Yeah. Uh, and I and I may be doing a reality show, and I will let you know. Oh my goodness. If that happens, but if people want to reach out to me, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's my next um, question. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I think I'm at, at Linda Thaler too, mm-hmm. and Linda K. Period Thaler for uh, Facebook. Uh, it's a public page because I I maxed out the people on my private page. Yeah. So you can find me there. But the other thing is, if you're interested in finding more about what I do or my books or anything, uh-huh. just go on to my website, KaplanThalerProductions.com. And uh, I can, anybody wants to communicate, you know, I just email me. That's awesome. Thank you so much for your time. And, uh, and I feel like I, I have like so many other questions. Maybe we'll do a, a part two one day. Uh, but uh, sure it, was, it was really nice having you on. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Great interview and best of luck to you. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye-bye. So that was my chat with Linda Kaplan-Thaler. What a great lady. We are all just sort of, I, I just, my the whole time my jaw was just dropped because I was just like, oh my God, she's telling a story about Melania Trump. Oh my God, she knows Colin Powell. I feel like uh, we, we got a scoop. We got a couple of scoops here, Matt. I think we got scoops on scoops. It's crazy. Anyway, I hope you got a lot out of it. I did. I'm going to check out uh, her books. I'm going to get The Power of Nice and The Power of Small and Grit to Great. This has been The A-List, brought to you by Ad House Advertising School. I'm Tom Chrisman. Thanks for listening. Please rate us and subscribe to us and all those things that you do where you find us. And let us know what you'd like us to do better. 
or uh, if you love the show, share it with friends. That would be great. We don't have a, a big ad budget, uh, ironically, for this show. And if you want to be interviewed for an upcoming episode, contact us through adhousenyc.com. And please sign up for a class while you're there. Our engineer was Matt Stillo. And our producer is Casey Balagurski. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks.